Live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 307 was recorded live November 17th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it seems to be dark more than it is light. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here. And we also have Kevin Ailes joining us this week. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I'm doing excellent. And yourself? I am doing fine. It is nice to not be sick. I've been coughing and choking for the last few days, so it's good to be up and around and with the world of the living, like to thank everybody who jumped into the chat room tonight. We had Surfer George showed up. Uh, he said he was surfing and lurking. We also had North Shore MA in for a few moments. If you want to participate in the chat room, at least until we change it up again, you can always join us on TalkShoe. We are show 73759. And we also like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air again another season. If you like hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, you want to tune in to WRVO Radio the Rena Viola Outdoor Network. Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We're we're hitting DEMA week, so first half of the show will be our normal news articles, and then as it happens this time of year with DEMA season, we have some hints of new gear that's starting to make it into the mainstream. And, of course, the first article is going up. I'd say it's your technical problems, you know, how complicated cut and paste can be. That's when you're all thumbs. Been there. Uh, first time was my fault, and the second time wasn't. I'll blame the Washington Post. But we have Enzo and uh, Maroka, is how I'm going to pronounce it, a record-setting free diver who inspired the big blue film Dives at 85. Enzo, a former spear fisherman who defied medical experts and bo- broke world records by swimming to depths more than 300 feet in a single breath, Bring the sport of free diving to the mainstream audience in the 1960s and 70s died November 13th in Syracuse, Italy. He was 85. <clears throat> the mayor uh, announced his death but did not provide additional details. Beginning in 1966, Enzo traded world records with free diving French diver Jacques Mail. Uh, when divers reached 249 feet in 1970, the International Federation ruled the depth too dangerous and refused to accept further records. Uh, he was the first to dive to a depth of 50 meters, 164 feet, without scuba gear or help from breathing apparatus. Mail was also the first to reach 100 meters, 328 feet. Their rivalry inspired much in the 1988 film The Big Blue, directed by Luke Besson. The film was a hit in Europe but was deeply wounding to Mr. Uh, Morocco, who said he thought it capt- uh, characterized him as an uneducated Sicilian. Now, Luke Besson, uh, isn't he the director of the Fifth Element? I'm going to have that to. I couldn't tell you. Some, yeah, because he was a Fifth Element, and if it is, he grew up. Yeah, it is. That uh, is the director of the Fifth Element, and uh, his parents were uh, diving experts, which is how he got involved into it. 
Spent his first few years of his life following his parents' scuba diving instructors around the world. And he's got a new movie coming out, uh, Valerian, V-A-L-E-R-I-A-N. It's going to be out in July, and I've got to see that, because Fifth Element has got to be one of my favorite movies. It's not particularly great movie. It's just absolutely entertaining. Well, it's a, it's a very different concept movie there. I mean, we have so many of these sci-fis that kind of fit in the same, the same mold, the same pattern, and that's one of the more unique ones out there. Yeah, I just I just find it entertaining. I enjoy it. I I like Bruce Willis and just about everything. My wife claims it's because the girl in the beginning doesn't have a top on. You know, that's just a bonus. <laughs> yeah, but for our listeners, I don't, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the uh, free diving, but you know what these folks are doing. I mean, it, it, it rivals scuba divers. Uh, you know, they're able to go down to uh, you know pretty much anything within sport depth. Now they can't stay as long as we do. Uh, I believe we're limited to about six minutes. Um, watched a great documentary on it uh, on a single breath. Uh, you know, kind of went into a little, bit, a little bit of the science, what's behind it, and you know what they're able to do and, and how they do it. Um, fascinating what these folks are able to do. Now, um, of course, they can't stay down as long as as we divers do, but you know, six minutes and not encumbered with tanks and weight. Well, they, they have some minimal weighting because um, they're, they're trying to just just stay neutral, same as we do. But it's it's shocking what they what these folks can do. No, I mean, the, uh, the amount the amount of stresses that your body goes underneath free diving is beyond anything at any point in my life I'd really be capable of. Maybe when I was eighteen, uh, and even then I was not in. I I would not have been a breath hold type of person. And, and we've had uh, we've had some free divers uh, on the program before. If, um, oh, Mac, do you remember who that was? We had her early on. What was the topic we had? Well, we we had a, we had the free diver. It was uh, with Danea Buckingham. I don't know if you remember. So soon we forget. Yeah, it's a video on YouTube. You can look up um, tricks to play on scuba divers, but it's basically it's a free diver. He's on a wreck. It looks to be probably about sixty feet deep, and you no, know, yeah, there's uh, some, some, some single tank divers down there, and. Uh, He's having fun playing with them. Of course, they're doing their very best to ignore them. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty impressive what these folks can do. So Yeah, the, to be able to hold your breath that long and uh, condition. And, and it requires some good training. And uh, there is does seem to be a little bit higher than normal fatality, especially with the solo training that these uh, competition free divers go through and do. Well, it's, it's kind of cultish. I mean, just how much, because they, they really do get, psyched up and you know what what they're going to do and and how deep they're going to stay and um i you know what's the record is i believe what it's at 203 meters i want to say i haven't looked it up but last oh, i heard it was you know i think it well it, oh, well over 600 feet yeah it's okay well that's going to require us to let free divers yeah there's uh, uh so I heard it was 203 meters now. They're not doing this, you know, basically swimming down, swimming up. They're doing this with assistance. They, they, they go down with the, um, the weights, pull them down, and then they come up on a lift bag. And they have to maintain a level of consciousness where they can repeat a phrase that's been whispered to them just before they went down or else they don't get the record. Um, well, sometimes what they'll do also is uh, they'll do tags. They have tags and lines, and then they have monitors. Monitor them. Um, why is it not coming up? Uh, Herbert Nitsch, uh, free diving world record champion, uh, low, no limits discipline depth of 214 meters, 702 feet. 214 meters. That's, that's, um, yeah. 714 feet. I mean, that's, yeah. And, 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 and like, right now. 
and like you said, there's different uh, classifications. They've got, uh, you know, fins, weighted, sleds, just all sorts of varieties to it. Now, isn't the world record on scuba just a few feet shy of 1,000 feet? I mean, it's right around 1,000 feet, I know. Okay. I mean, it, to think that they're getting, you know, over 700 feet deep without scuba equipment. Now, they, they have a, you know, assists, you know, they have equipment that, that help, helping them do this, but imagine the pressure on your lungs that must... I mean, and I kind of I can't figure out how they would they would equalize. Well, I mean, I've heard stories of where they their body doesn't react as you would expect. That uh, fluids will be forced into their lungs and chest cavities, and doesn't sound the greatest when you get to these extremes. Uh, the deepest uh, is uh, three hundred thirty-two meters. Okay, so just over a thousand feet. Yeah. And this this might be a little old because it seemed like we just did an article on it recently where they had had beaten this. Yeah, a thousand forty four feet in Egypt in two thousand five, and I thought we just did some recently. Now maybe those were duration records. There's always some record that's being broken. But think about it, you, you can you go that deep and you don't have any any uh, decompression obligation. Oh, with the free diving, yes. Yeah, you wouldn't have any any deco. You, you couldn't. <laughs> There's no no way to go through deco on on a free dive. And then back in the news, we have five World War II warships and a submarine have vanished from the sea floor. Two enormous Dutch-owned warships that sank in the waters off the Java Sea in 1942 have completely disappeared, along with an American submarine and three British naval vessels. International investigation underway to find out how remarkable conjuring trick was performed, but the moment is likely they were quickly salvaged by an unknown party of scrap metal. An investigation was launched to see what happened to the wrecks while the cabinet has been formed, the Dutch minister defense minister said as reported by the guardian the desecration of the war grave is a serious offense the next year will be a 75th anniversary of the battle of the java sea which ended humiliating and devastating defeat for the british dutch american australian forces in the region and a huge territorial gain for the japanese three dutch boats the hnlms the uter java and de Kortenaar, are among those that have sunk beneath the waves back in 2002. Amateur divers came across the wrecks, and several professional expedition sighters uh, had sought to document, protect them ever since. This year's expedition blasted the seafloor of Sona. Although the imprints of the wrecks were there, two of the ships are completely vanished. The coronar is still present, but a huge chunk has been stripped away. Scrap salvaging is common practice in the region, region thanks to reputation as a warship graveyard. Until now, only smaller ships have fallen victim scrappers. The theft is a far larger scale, like which haven't been seen before. Weren't we just talking about something similar to this? Another uh, ship being um, yeah, scrapped. It was, it was down in South America area? No, it was in the same area. It was over here in Indonesia. Uh, okay. And I think what they're just now is they're, as they're looking at other, because they had some where they were just like the beginning stages, things have been stripped off, but it looks like as they've expanded their search and looked at more wrecks, they're seeing com- complete wrecks missing. So, you know, I guess they've decided they're worth more pulling them up than leaving them down. <clears throat> yeah, so that's got to be a large operation to pull up a warship like this, though. I, don't know. Yeah, I, I checked a couple of sites they were talking about to do the damage, meaning the recovery like that. They would have had to have some rather large derricks on the ships that remove the parts. It appears that a couple of those are in 200 foot of water, so they're not terribly, terribly deep. So you could definitely um, clamshell them. 
So you think that's what they're doing? Would they be clamshelling or would they have been torturing them and cutting them up? Well, I think the easiest thing is try clamshelling what you can first because they should have deteriorated quite a bit, so clamshelling might work. Yeah, I was looking at, uh, you know, because I had, I had invested in that Odyssey company who was doing some salvaging, and they were ta- they had taken some of these, like if you've seen arms on these uh, cranes where they can actually shear beams, uh, they actually had rigs like that that they would drop down and they could shear decking off a ship for salvaging. Well, you know, they're talking about war graves. The uh, USS Perch, I think it was the Perch, was the submarine they were talking about. But the whole crew was captured. So there really isn't any, you know, American, my understanding, American sailors left on that boat. So I'm not sure how that would fall under war grave by any stretch. I think they're just uh, expanding it to include that some of the war graves. Yeah. But if, if you think you own it and somebody took it, then I can see somebody getting upset. Oh, yeah. is, is this some, how many years? It's like, if you want it, how come you didn't take it? Is this in international waters? Well, uh, I, I think know. it's out I mean, in I, that area, but because there are military vessels, I don't think that they... Well, yeah, was it? I mean, if, it, if it's a military vessel and they declared a war grave, it seems a war grave regardless, but I'm just curious. I mean, it must have been a very isolated area because this didn't just happen overnight. Right. I mean, uh, and, and once it's melted out, you're going to tell me, well, show me the pieces that I stole, and then we'll talk. Well, you just, you know, it's, you got to get that magnet on your bumper, and, and, and you know those submarines, the the metal's just a little different. Yeah, once they melt it down and mix it with something else, it's hard to prove what you got, where it came from. Well, you've seen those scrapyards are out there and uh, around the Cape Horn, right, of Africa. You've seen those pictures where they just bring them in and they just rip them apart their own shore. Oh yeah, they just they winch them up on shore and then the the guys uh-huh. are torching them and half dying. Yeah, but it'd really be neat to see how long it took them to do five five ships like that. Now, if that had been a union job, it'd still be going on. <laughs> hey, hey. Okay, let me rephrase that. A government job, it'd still be going on. Oh wow, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're. <laughs> Spot the Alien Fish Campaign has been launched. A citizen campaign dealing with non-indigenous fish species has been launched by the university campaign, which follows a spot in the jellyfish campaign that was first launched in 2010. is being run together with their International Ocean Institute, Department of Fisheries and Aquaculture, Friends of the Earth in the, what the heck, Istutito? I'm not even going there, of Italy, whatever that is, a bunch of letters. The poster features photographs of 32 fish species which have entered the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal or the Straits of Gibraltar. The ultimate aim of the campaign is to monitor in the long term any population changes within Maltese water and a second alien fish species as part of an informal transboundary observation network on alien marine species established between Malta, Tanzania, and Sicily. The selected 32 fish species have either been recently recorded Maltese waters or are yet unknown these waters, but have been recorded from continuous regions such as Sicily or Tanzania. The poster gives indication of the point of entry of each fish in the Mediterranean while identifying the toxic, unfit for consumption, and venomous, unfit for handling species. So it seems that everywhere has some uh, invasive species moving in. I was going to send you a, a shot of ours. It's called the Alien Invasion Great Lakes Dilemma. And it has the pictorials and it has 180 exotic species that have found their way into the Great Lakes during the past 200 years 
jeopardizing the entire ecosystem of the Great Lakes. Now, I'm guessing that quite a few of those were intentionally transplanted, though, were they not? The majority yeah. of them were not. No, but I, I'm kind of surprised to see on some lists for the Great Lakes, you'll, you'll see even, um, you know, like salmon and a lot of trout species considered you know, invasive species because, you know, that they're not natural here. I mean, the, the, the DNR's put a lot of money into, into transplanting them, but they are still considered um, invasive just because they're not, you know, a, a natural species here. They weren't originally native to the area. Correct. Yeah, when you, when you look at the uh, all the, the, the sport fish out in the uh, Great Lakes, you know, your your king salmon, your coho salmon, your brown trout, your steelhead, you know, all of those are, are non-natural fish. Um, but, but they're a huge benefit here as well. So, Yeah, they, they, we've, we've come economically reliant on them. Well, you know, when you look at what's natural out there, um, you know, the, uh, the lake sturgeon is natural. The, um, oh, what is it? Sorry, I'm blanking on the name. Um, lake trout are natural. Then you have a lot of smaller species which are natural. I think your white your whitefish and your ciscos and um, there are quite a few smaller fish that are natural. But the ones which the um, you know, the fishermen are really prized going after, most of those have been transplanted here. And a little fun fact for our listeners: uh, steelhead and rainbow trout, same same species. Uh, people people get them often consider them to be different fish, but uh, a, a steelhead is basically just a rainbow trout that made its way out into the big water. And the big water washes a lot of the color out of it, but it genetically it's the same thing as a rain, as a uh, rainbow trout. Well, I do know they're talking about the Chinook population of Lake Michigan. It's dropped seventy five percent from two thousand twelve. Wow! Really? Yep. They're saying Lake Michigan salmon fishing is a mere skeleton of what it was five to ten years ago. I, I heard that Huron had crashed a couple of years ago. I haven't been involved with that recently, but I was really surprised to hear that the uh, DNR. Um, is discontinuing stocking uh, Chinook, Chinook and King Salmon, the same, same species, um, in Lake Superior. I guess uh, Lake Superior, 99% of the catch of King Salmon are from uh, are, are natural, naturally reproducing fish. So they're discontinued there. Um, I was going to say, according to the Michigan uh, item here, that we're talking about the fish itself in Lake Michigan of all varieties are decreasing. They were saying that the Kraga mussels surpassed densities of 35,000 per square meter, and the tiny shrimp called Diporia, D-I-P-O-R-E-I-A, a bait food uh, food source, have dropped from 5,200 per square meter to 82 per square wow. meter per 2010. Ow. Ain't no food. The fish are starving. Uh, they're not reproducing like they did. Yeah, I, I heard it was because the, the alewife population was crashing, but the alewives... Um, would be dependent upon, of course, those those smaller species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, a, I, I heard those coming down. I didn't know that they were near that bad. Wow. Yeah, here's a, here's an article on, on the chat room. It says Michigan revises plan to reduce Lake Michigan fish stocking. Michigan officials revised a plan to reduce Lake Michigan fish stocking. Response to complaint from anglers. Michigan recently agreed with Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Native tribes to decrease annual Lake Michigan stocking by about 17% from current uh, levels because of shortage of prey fish. Each state adopted its own plan to help reach the target. An angler group criticized Michigan for planning to cut stocking of prize Chinook salmon, while Wisconsin would maintain its salmon levels while reducing stocking of other species. Michigan Department of Natural Resources now plans a smaller reduction in Chinook while also decreasing stocking of coho salmon and lake trout. 
The NRA officials say anglers should see significant differences in the goals to keep the overall fish population healthy. So kind of the same thing. They said, why stock them when if you're just going to starve out uh, your population? It's a shame they won't. That none of those warfish take a real interest in gobies. I mean, there's there's gobies of plenty down there. Yeah, well, once you oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, there. Go ahead. I was going to say once you you find something that really starts going after them, that's it wasn't it wasn't a sturgeon they said were starting to get a goby taste. Mm. Yes, I, I, I know that it was. I believe they got to eat something. What's going to replace these guys? Of course, game fish is going to be the silver and the big head carp because they're going to grow to seventy to one hundred and ten pounds. They are edible, and uh, that's going to be your next game fish. <laughs> yeah, but silver big fish carp does not belong on a same menu as a as a king salmon. I mean, there's king salmon are, are going downhill, and that, that that that's a tragedy. I mean, that's one of the best meals you can eat. So. Yeah. Well, the other item about that it says neither species of those two carp will bite will bite a baited hook. So the only way you're going to get them is to net them. It appears. You know, or, or just uh, drive a boat up and down and have them jump in it. That's true. And you've <laughs> yeah. seen those uh, videos of where they have contests like that. Where you get the guys wearing the helmets and they got the boats with the nets out. Yes. Yeah, I said since the introduction of the Gobi Lake Trout numbers have taken a hit in the Great Lakes, the St. Clair small bass population season has shifted to allow the bass to protect their beds from Gobi predation. Yeah, it's just really a shame they won't go to the gobies because I know that the alewives were not what those species initially ate either. It's just the uh, DNR was looking at it as, you know, we had this potential great amount of food for uh, salmon. Uh, when I was on the South Haven Steelheaders, we had a guy come in from the DNR and kind of gave us a little bit of a, uh, a breakdown on, you know, their planning for bringing, introducing uh, you know, salmon and, and large trout into uh, Lake Michigan. And everyone was just hated the alewives. The alewives would have a die-up every three years and would stink the beaches up, and it was a tremendous cleanup issue in your resort towns. And they, the, the, the DNR suspected that the uh, the salmon species they were they were uh, breeding would go after the alewives, you know, voraciously. And it just so happened that the alewife population outstripped their their forage base the same year as the DNR began. Um, uh, stocking salmon, and so there was, there was a huge die-off of the alewives. But then the next year, next to no alewives, and the papers proclaimed, "Hey, DNR stocking program is take, is taking out the alewives." And DNR is thinking, "Well, not really, but yeah, we'll take the credit for that." <laughs> well, have you seen the new one that's rather interesting? It's piranhas with human-like teeth and Michigan fuel concern over invasive fish. Have you read that one? No, I haven't. And it's a three large vegetarian piranhas with human-like teeth have been discovered in Michigan amid growing concern among wildlife officials over tropical and invasive fish infiltrating the Great Lakes region. Over the past month, two red-bellied paca piranhas have been caught in Lake St. Clair and the other in Port Huron in Michigan. Lake paca, those are South American, aren't they? Yeah, they were actually the fish people have then tossed into the lake, and the cold water did not kill them. Oh, oops. You know, when I heard people reporting those, I just thought it was didn't realize that they had uh, taken a hold. Well, I'm looking at the picture of the teeth on this guy, and it's, swear to God, it looks it's, like somebody's choppers. Oh, it does. They have very human-looking teeth. I'm, I'd be curious to see if they find them after the winter. Well, we don't have any idea how many they were, and also we don't know if they're actually breeding 
in the water where they just dumped. But yeah. it's, it's a lot of effort to go take a, a fish from South America and dump it in the lake. But to find two in, in St. Clair and then one in Huron? Yeah. Uh, I say Huron or Erie. I mean, what's the chances of catching them that far apart? No. If somebody dumped well, just two or three fish in there. Well, yeah, but the thing is, if you're, if you're catching them, there's going to be a lot more than what you're catching. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, authorities in Fort Wayne, Indiana, have built a seven-and-a-half-foot wall in a bid to halt the onward advance of the Asian carp. It's a two-mile-long earthen berm, which replaced a temporary chain-leak fence designed to stop the carp. So the government isn't doing it, so some of the local authorities are trying to do their part. Well, it's it's nice. It's a good thought, but it, it just sounds so much like, like they're already here. I mean, um, you know, we... In, in Holland, there's a boardwalk there, and it has little interpretive plaques along it. And one of the, you know, I'm talking Holland, Michigan, here along the shore of Lake Michigan, uh, and a very weathered portion of the plaque that's been there for a while um, talks about the Asian carp in the Great Lakes. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I saw this several years ago. Um, you know, I'm not saying just because you read it on a plaque it makes it true, but you know, with them finding finding the DNA, and there's just been so much. That looks like they're here. So I'm just surprised not- that we're not seeing more of them if they are here, or have they bred with something else that was already in? I mean, because we've had carp in Lake Michigan, so has it crossbred with another species and it's become something else? Well, you know, when I was diving in Lake Huron last um, two weeks ago, I mean, I saw something that really looked like a silver carp. I mean, uh, not sure if they're supposed to be there or not, but I'm pretty sure I saw a silver carp when I was down there um, diving either the Price or the Regina. So, uh, There's a new one also of that group that's coming into like it's called the Persia, the Prussian carp. So it looks like a goldfish, but it's silver. Hmm. That's been found, and that's this month. And according to this one, uh, the Asian carp re- reproducing naturally in the Great Lakes tribula- tributaries. So it's almost like too much or too late, too little, too late. Most like. Now, Sandusky River, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar where Sandusky River is. It sounds like that'd be over in Ohio. And that makes sense, yeah. Well, that means what? Lake, uh, Lake Erie. Erie. Huron, Lake Erie, that's yeah. right up the stream from everybody else. Yep. That's not going to be fun. Well, the Cape Cod Car- uh, Chronicle is saying that the artificial reef is flourishing in Harwick. On November 3rd, divers inspecting a new artificial reef made from debris from the demolished Harwick High School were pleased to find the site crowded with schools of Tautog, Black Sea Bass, and Cunner. It was gratifying, said Mark Rosseo, artificial reef coordinator for Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries, and his colleague Mark Malowski uh, donned scuba gear and descended to the site. The objective of the dive of the day was to collect some photos, videos, and monitor progress of the reef itself. There were a lot of fish. The video posted online, divers saw schools of various species creating a scene that looked a bit like a tropical aquarium, albeit duller hues. The display was impressive, since it wasn't surprising 225 days after the reef was installed. We expect it to species like black sea bass are prone to utilizing structures wherever they are. The bottom of Nantucket Sound is largely featureless. He noted the reef was constructed using miscast catch basins, remains from the former high school foundation. The $146,000 for the project came from the DMF recreational saltwater fish permit fees. Installed in a square zone about 600 feet across, the reef is actually a series of distinct piles of debris. 
patched habitat characteristics is what scientists right now are the most important for species diversity. The edges of debris pile represent boundaries between different habitats, and these edges are productive areas for marine life. Seems like that should be an ideal place to sink a boat or a ship. I would think so. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was in diving depth. They were out there. I'm all for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 146,000. Well, we pretty much know about Lake Michigan and our, our lakes around here are, are clean. Oh, yeah. They're just, they're so, like sand, just flat sand. I'd love to see a bunch of wrecks in 100 foot of water around here. Mm-hmm. One, it might break up the currents and maybe add some sand back to the beaches. You know, some of those underwater currents might be uh, abated a little bit. Yeah, that would be, it'd be great. Well, let's go, let's get down to, so Dima Show is starting so you we have a the, the start the trickle of press releases and items that divers might find interesting this first article and i have never heard of this company before but indigo industries launches into the scuba industry uh, they're pushing their equipment which includes fins masks dpvs and a roller dive bag all known to have uh, lots of color options when we set out to develop the Indigo brand, we wanted to bring new technology and fresh designs to scuba industry. The engineering team has been development over the year. We feel it's no better place to launch our brand than the 2016 DEMA show. So we didn't make DEMA this year. I, I keep every year thinking I'm going to go down, and this year I just didn't even pretend to make it down. But we do know people who are down there. Uh, Rich Sinowick's down there. I've, I saw a post that Dania Buckingham has gone down there. Probably other people. I, I guess Steve Lewis didn't, didn't do it this week. He had an opportunity to skip it. So maybe next year. Maybe that's got to be a next year. I say that every year. Well, if you hit the uh, search engine there, you'll find up on Facebook, Twitter, a uh, whole bunch of listings for it. But I didn't find one that specifically gave me a catalog. Oh, for the... for the Indigo Industries? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't... On Pinterest... And then we have a new dive computer. Uh, Deep Blue announces the COS COS MIQ Plus dive computer. Uh, shares core hardware features with its predecessor, including a 2.2-inch display, rechargeable battery, syncs wireless with a Deep Blue app, allowing divers to upload dive data directly to smartphones, create interactive digital dive logs with images and video clips. A new bottom timer mode for tech divers, computer secondary device, bottom uh, it's available in five colors. Price is the same as its predecessor, which is about $300. Is that really a dive computer, or is that just like a dive log? It's hard to tell. I'm not familiar with that brand either. No, it, the name sounds familiar, but it just I think it's because it sounds like several other brands out there. Well, and a lot of these we may not know in the U.S. Uh, it's Sometimes it's hard to get into the U.S. market. That computer there, they're saying that it's slated for release on Black Friday in North America. Be available globally in December twenty. Oh, which is just a couple of days. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, part of it is you have to be at a dive shop. It's got a dive shops can only carry so much gear. But here's one I have heard of, or at least I've heard of the brand. I'm not. I, this is a new model. Surewater Research launches their new uh, Perdix AI dive computer. They introduce the newest addiction to the Shearwater family of dive computers. Uh, using a large, easy-to-read display, the Perdix AI displays tank pressure as well as gas time remaining and is capable of connecting to either one or two transmitters, giving the divers options to monitor two tanks or allowing for side-mount diving. Air integration is optional for all modes, from open-circuit rack to closed-circuit 
Uh, could be assigned to customized slots, computer, and access through the information screen. Sherwell will continue to manufacture the original uh, Perdix as well as the Petrol 2 and the Nerd line, and will sell Perdix AI along with other Shearwater products. They don't say how much this is. I'm I'm guessing this is... Uh, l- how much would you think this would be? I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting that that's the first ever Chinese-English uh, language dive computer. Really? Yes. If you go to their site and you look at that Pentrix, and it's uh-huh. got five little icons, go to the last one. And if you read Chinese, <laughs> um, it, it, it's quite interesting. You know, Basically, the Chinese says depth, time, stop, time. It gives you your uh, oxygen content, your NDL, and your TTS. That's what the Chinese symbols mean. Yeah, it says English, French, simplified Chinese, traditional Chinese, German, Korean, and Japanese. Well, you think about it, if you're an equipment manufacturer, uh, Chinese is one of the rapidly, uh, fastest-growing markets for the dive industry, so it would make sense. People keep forgetting, you know, there's a billion Chinese. Oh, yeah. And then when you go to, to India, there's a billion Indians. Yes. We're only 350 million. Yeah. yeah there's just... big markets. It's not American. <laughs> no, not, not if you're... Not as those countries get their standards of living up. Yeah. Um, and what's happened is that the the rich parts of their society have, have, are rapidly growing, which is really where this is aimed at. They just need to develop their middle class. Uh, the mini dive miniature scuba tank. I still love it. How they say. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like you've lost a bet. The mini dive tank can be filled using a hand pump. Snorkelers who would like to enjoy the underwater worlds, would rather not learn the skills and invest in professional scuba equipment, may be interested in a new personal miniature scuba tank named Mini Dive. Mini Dive has been designed to provide 10 minutes of oxygen, allowing you to stand under the waves and explore a little longer. Tank can be filled using a hand pump or a mini electric compressor, allowing you to quickly recharge your tank when required. This mini personal scuba tank is available for just 389 euros. They expect to start shipping to backers before the end of the year. That doesn't sound like well, much of a deal. Well, I think the, the the deal here is that, you know, to, to get your scuba tanks filled, you have to be a certified diver. This is something you can fill yourself. But well, Couldn't I mean, you just, like, grab, like, buy somebody else's tanks and fill it with your bicycle pump? Well, I don't know that you can fill it. I guess if you can find the adapter, I suppose you could. Um, I'm sure that a, this is probably a whole lot lighter than a scuba tank. I mean, I, I'm thinking grab a pony bottle, actually, you know. I mean, I, uh-huh. if this thing is, you know, being filled off, a, you know, a, a bicycle pump, then I'm sure it's looking at, what, about 100 PSI max. Um, you know, you get a, a similar size pony bottle. I'm uh, looking at the regulator here. It looks like it looks like it's about the size of a six-cubic-foot pony bottle to me. I mean, um there's not a lot of air in that thing <laughs> with no. its such such low pressure. I mean, uh, uh, it says breathe underwater for five to ten minutes, but I'm thinking you've got to be about four feet underwater. Well, but it that. also says you're adding oxygen. Now, the thing, ten minutes of oxygen. Now, are no. you putting oxygen in it yourself? Is this actually running just pure oxygen in the thing? I mean, if that's the case, it's not. It's not something which you know you can fill off a bicycle pump anymore. No, no. I I think that's just a naive somebody saying that. Now that regulator is that a Scuba Pro regulator on there? It looks like it. It's got the emblem on it. Yeah, it looks like a spare air tank. Yeah, you know, spare the small ones, then you got the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Now you can actually fill up a tank like that up to two thousand pounds with a hand pump. Oh, maybe that's what they're doing. 
Yeah, we can calibrate it. It's a, it's a calibration tool you can use to calibrate up to that. But for that kind of volume, you're going to get a freaking hand hand cramp. <laughs> yeah. But for that much money, I'll buy me a tank. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, Kevin's got to be right. I think it's just you have to think that you're getting away with something. Would be the only reason why you do it. Well, you know, for the, you can get certified for you know four hundred bucks and do it and do it legal, do it right. I mean, this really <laughs> does not look. I would not recommend it. Yeah. Did, you, did you go to the site? Uh, it's a Kickstarter program. Yeah, click on the link all the way at the bottom. I mean, are, are these people being taught about how you know how to equalize? Because you know, once you are you know breathing compressed air, you know you are now a diver. You're you're no longer a snorkeler. And there are things you have to know as far as you know, equalizing your ears, you know, your mask, um, being prepared for decompression illness and things. I mean, if you're not, I don't know, this looks pretty scary to me here. So It just says, breathe normally, you're fine. Like swimming with the fishes. It says it's, it's for recommended for ages eight and up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did, did you go to their website? No, I, I'm at, on the Kickstarter site is what I'm looking at. Yeah, did you see the chest mount? Yeah, that, that that looks like somebody just cut together some little vinyl and, yeah. Then put a spare air in it. Yeah, I mean, and if they're not taught about the diving skills, what are you going to do when it runs out? What are you going to do if it free flows? I don't see an octopus on this here. I mean, um, what does it say about well, diving with a buddy? Well, it Where's says... Where's your flag? Where's your flag? Says, yeah, it says <laughs> 3,000 pounds, working pressure 3,000 pounds, tank volume is 3.5 cubic feet, how big? For non-divers, you should not go below three meters. Standardize fifty meters. Well, you know, you can you can dive down three meters without that. I mean, we were just talking about about these about free divers going down two hundred and three meters. I mean, uh, you know, personally, I dove down to you know close to thirty feet myself. You know, I mean, uh, well, over twenty anyway. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's it's a gadget. I wouldn't recommend it. So, it's 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 a cool idea, but when when you look at the, the you know the how practical it is, and people who are now not qualified as divers doing things that divers do without the training, without the safety, without the buddy, without the flag, um, yeah, let's let's get Dave Tomman on here. Let him turn, <laughs> go yeah. into this thing here. So, <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah. I think there's a part down here that says. Can only be sold to people with common sense. Oh, here you go. On the regulator on the back end, it says, never block your breathing, breathe continuous. Never give, never go up to the surface faster than air bubbles. Use at shallow depth. Watch your manometer very regularly. Use prohibited without knowledge of use hazards. Yeah. That's on the exhaust manifold of your regulator. I notice that everything's in euros, so they're 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 probably not even beginning to get this in U.S. Well, I mean, I don't. I just see without the training. I mean, you got to realize that person doesn't have a buoyancy compensator. Okay, I mean, they get down, um, you know, twenty feet, and now their their wetsuit has compressed enough. They lost some buoyancy, and now they're now they're a dirt dart. You know, I mean, nobody come back up. You know, I. I I see so many bad things happening here. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, thank you, no. Yeah, well, it just launched today, and they've already reached their funding goal. They they were uh, looking for sixteen thousand. They have thirty seven backers, sixteen thousand seven hundred nineteen so far. Twenty eight days to go, so it's funded. 
but but how much but how many of them are divers how, how many of them know i mean th- th- this is all about you know people who are not divers who want to find a shortcut to be a diver and think that wow we get this gadget in our in our face and we can do it well remember that that viral gadget that was out there and we've seen oh, the, it pop up over over the, and over and over again the the one that looked like a yeah i know the one you're it talking looked, about it looked it looks like, like a harmonica you know you put it in your mouth and you can oh, breathe underwater Bond. yeah James Bond one. That one. yeah you know basically you know, yeah that, that's something off a james bond movie oh, they also had it in the um, the star wars movies too you know and it's like <sighs> You know, yeah, they've also got lightsabers in there, too, and we don't use those either, you know. I mean, just because you see it in the movies doesn't mean it's something realistic here. And I, I just see so many bad things happening here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, lots of bad things happen. But it's kind of like the early days of scuba diving. It's almost like it's gone full circle. Well, yes, but, you know, liability wasn't what it is today. But I mean, um, no, I mean, you know, and, and, and a lot of people... A lot of people died in the early days of scuba diving. You know, I mean, um, nah, I just see so many bad things happening here. I agree. That's that's not something I'd be recommending, especially to eight-year-olds. <laughs> eight-year-olds, yeah. Well, uh, certainly. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Uh, Mac, do you have a safety story for this week? Well, it's not a safety story. I'm going to talk about cold water diving, and after I'm done, I'll let you guys. Add in what I probably have missed. How's that sound? Yeah, we'll do that. Okay, it's it's that time of the year that we're starting to get hard water. From that aspect, most people realize hypothermia is not your friend. The other part is, you know, when you start getting into water, the heat radiates from your body at least 25 times faster than it does in the air. So cold water diving can be hazardous to your health. So what I'm going to do is talk about what do you got to do if you want to do some cold water diving. And these are the items I just came up with. Number one is to stay warm before the dive. And part of that is always wear a warm hat and gloves. Second part is set up all your gear before starting to suit up. And when you do start to suit up, take your dry clothing and put in a wear, you know, in a warm area. So when you get out, you got something warm and dry to put back on. Now, if you're wet suiting or dry suiting, you're both going to use layers of clothing that would suit the temperature that you're comfortable at. Now, I'll address wetsuits first. Now, if you're a wetsuiter, I would recommend a Farmer John with a hooded vest over woolen undergarments and socks, which will help retain your body heat and minimize water flow by your skin. Secondary, you get that on, then you fill your suit up with warm water, not hot water, but warm water, and that will reduce your thermal shock and slows your heat loss when you get that equilibrium between the, the cold influx of water with what you've already got. Secondary item to that is if you took latex gloves and you put thin woolen gloves under it, and then you put those in your wet suit gloves, that works really good towards help minimize the heat loss from your hands. Now, if you're wearing a dry suit, you're going to adjust your undergarments to the temperature of the water and your activity. Even with the dry suit, though, the two parts of your body that's going to get cold first is going to be your head and your hands. And when you're talking both wet suit and dry suit, you got to remember that you're losing your heat at your neck, your armpits, and your your growing areas. And when you think about it, that is absolutely correct. Around your neck, you really want to keep that warm. And if you've got water sloshing down your armpits like a bellows because you got a leaky wet suit, 
you're going to get that cold water flushing through, and that's going to make you extremely cold quicker. So for cold water diving, we know some techniques now, but what you got to watch out for, if you're cold water diving, then you're going to have more bulk. You're going to have a, a bulkier dry suit, or you're going to have more bulk added to your pneumatic, or to your wetsuit. If you got that, more bulk, you're going to need more weights. So normally in cold water diving, you need more weights. So you have to watch your buoyancy issue. Second item you're going to definitely have to have is a cold water regulator. And with that, you want to make sure it's tuned up. And you're always careful not to hit the purge button at the same time you're trying to use your inflators, both on your BC or your suit, because now you got much more volume of air flowing through and a higher potential to create a free flow and it won't stop for you. They always talk about keep your hands warm and put gloves, meaning your dry or wet gloves on, last. The exception, they say, is if you're really going to do this right, put your three-finger mitts or your five fingers on and do everything and get used to using your gloved hands in the dry with your equipment before you go on the water and do it that way. Both items, you know, they'll both work that way. And like I said, practice suiting up with your gloves on before you get, you know, try to get out there and get wet. Other part is make sure you have a container of warm water. doesn't have to be boiling. Because you want, you want to use it for your glove top off. If you're putting your hood on, lastly, you want to put that on. And they recommend putting like a skull cap or a, a beanie cap under your wetsuit hood or your dry suit hood because that will help minimize the heat loss again. The other reason you want to have the hot water is it's great for de-icing regulators to start to have a free flow especially if you've been doing some ice diving like we have. We know that does help. It's also great when you get out because we've had days when you get out, by the time you get to the warming tent, your zippers are frozen, all your buckles are frozen, your snaps are frozen. So having that hot water helps you get your equipment off. Now, if you haven't been in cold water before, one of the items I always talk about is be prepared for the cold water shock, especially if you're talking wetsuit. That cold water shock is something you need to get used to and it only takes a minute, basically, to get acclimated to it. But the second set, if you've not done before, is practice your mask clearing in cold water in shallow water. Because until you get used to it, it's going to startle you. Also, when you're going down in cold water, you have to be careful of your ears because you it's a little harder to clear your ears for a lot of people. Because your station tubes are going to get a little blocked up. Everything's cold. They're not functioning or as elastic as when you're warm. Other items to remember is... When you're cold, your air consumption rate increases. In a bulky suit, dry suit, more stuff on your your wet suit, you've got increased drag, which means you work harder, which means your breathing rate's increased again. Other aspect is you stop the dive before you start shivering. If you're shivering, you should have been out of the water already. And you don't wait until, well, I can't feel my feet anymore or my hands are numb. Those are not good tattletale items to say when to stop the dive. Once you have exited the water, key items there is it change in stages, especially if you don't have a warming shed or a warming booth, meaning take your hood off, immediately dry your head, put on a warm hat. You know, scarf hats are really great. I like them. Take your gloves off, dry your hands, put on dry, warm gloves. Take the top of your suit off, dry yourself. Again, really is nice if you can put a warm shirt on. Then you take your trousers, slash in your boots, and put on dry preferably warm clothing. Use of uh, hand warmers in your boots does make a difference, meaning you can keep the boots warm, take the hand warmers out before you put your feet in. You can also put the hand warmers in your clothing to help do that. Some people have even used those 
uh, pizza bags to keep your pizza warm. They put the clothes in that and then a couple of baggies in there. And that seems to have helped out quite a bit. So after you get that, now you're dry, you're warm, get something warm to drink, preferably non-alcoholic. You do those steps and you're a long way towards enjoying cold water diving. Comments from the peanut gallery. I like it. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you nailed many of the points right there. Uh, the, as you started off, you, if you, if you want to be warm, you have to start warm. So, you know, wearing the gloves being, being warm right at the beginning is a certain advantage. Uh, proper fitting gear, as you pointed out, keeps the, the movement of, of cold water, uh, down on the, in the case of a wetsuit. Right. Yeah, Mac, Mac, I think you hit, hit the points very well. Uh, I would, I would also emphasize, um, importance of uh, making sure that, that you do have a buddy with you and possibly a bailout as well for cold water diving you know you, you, even with the cold water regs you know you you are more likely to have a free flow when you're doing the cold water diving and so you want to have um you know a a backup system you know whether it's the uh the buddy the pony bottle bailout set up there um you know if you're doing this as as far as ice diving, then you know consider having a tethering system. You know, um, although although anyone who is considering ice diving, you know, should have far more instruction than we're giving you here on the podcast. You know, this is something which you get a you know you can get a card from Patty with, or you know you can you know look up a lot more information. We're just doing just a primer here. By, by no means are we certifying someone out there to go ice, ice diving here. Um, well, this was just cold water diving. This is not even ice diving. Well, one thing I would add is that I've noticed, um, you know, and, and Mac, you taught me this, uh, when it comes to cold water diving, um, you know, if, it, if the air is below freezing, um, minimize the amount of breathing you do on your uh, second stage above the water surface there. You're quite likely to get a free flow um, breathing on a regulator if the, if the air is below freezing. So, But, yeah, I think you hit the points quite well. Always good advice. And if you got any tips that we missed, go ahead and drop us a line at the show at scubaobsessed.com and we'll add your comments. I'll, I'll put another public service announcement. If you're on a boat and you're out there fishing in cold weather, always, always, always wear a personal flotation device that can keep your head above water when you lose consciousness. Yes. Your, your useful time in 32-degree water, it... The older you are, the worse it's going to hurt you. The young you are, the worse it's going to hurt you. Obviously, there's variables for everybody, but 15 minutes in 32-degree water, and you're pretty much toast. You are. If you don't have a flotation device, you're going to die because you're going to drown because you're going to be unconscious. One item I did learn that I didn't think about, which made sense, that if you were in the ice, for example, you fell through and you couldn't get out, they recommend taking your arms, putting as far on the ice as you can, so when your arms freeze to the surface, when you go unconscious, you're not going to drown. I had never thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. It, it does. Because your hands are worthless after about two minutes. And you've, you, ever, you guys have been out there when you took your gloves off in real cold water. Oh, yeah. You can't do a bloody thing. You can't. They were given examples um, on, on people who fell out of boats who had dry gear on. Not dry gear, but... um exposure suits, company suits, and they're going to put them on in the water. doesn't happen because your hands are so cold you can't put them on. So key item, wear your flotation device anytime you're out in the water. The, the drowning statistics for people 
like that. The furthest they're out is usually 30 yards from safety, and they gave percentages how many people die within 10 feet of shore because they can't function. And if they had a flotation device, at least they had a chance. Yeah. So, where are your flotation device? Yeah, because it doesn't matter how strong you think you are. When you get cold, that just saps your strength. Yeah. And then uh, Scuba Tech in the chat room, he's saying that uh, he says it's making him ready to come out for a turkey dive. So when, when's our turkey dive going to be? Well, turkey dive is going to be the 26th, high noon. Keep a check on Facebook, and we'll say where we're going to be. We're going to either be at the Benton Harbor River side, well, either that or Whirlpool Basin, or we're going to be down on Niles. Which one seems to have the most viz that day? <laughs> so you're talking about which one has over two feet? Well, they all had at least three feet today. Nice. I mean, I had three to five, depending on where you were before you touched the freaking bottom. Now, before we get into the dives for this week, Kevin, did you have a wreck of the week? Yes, I do, actually. Um, kind of took a little bit of a hint from uh, Karen in our mud club. Um, kind of wanted to hear something about you know some, some easier access wrecks. Yeah, some of the wrecks I've mentioned lately have been a little bit more challenging to hit. Um, so I'm going to talk about a really rare treasure that we have here in the Great Lakes. Um, this is the, the Bermuda Shipwreck. Now, the Bermuda Shipwreck is in the Alger Underwater Preserve up by Munising. Uh, very unique wreck. Very uh, shockingly well-preserved wreck in only 28 feet of water. Now, most often when you have a wreck that's that shallow, the weather has really done number on it. Um, you know, the ice, the waves, storms, they, they don't hold up very well when it's that shallow. But the Bermuda is a very special case. Uh, the Bermuda originally uh, sunk, I believe it was 1870. I'm going to uh, post a few links here into the chat room here. And some of these links actually are, uh, from, from this one here is going to be from a paddleboard site. Um, I'm going to send over here. Just give me one moment to get this baby caught up here because I'm on my old computer day, one of my oldest computers. Isn't this the one you guys checked out a couple of years ago? Um, this had is, the glass bottom tours over now. Yeah, this is one which we uh, we dove it two years in a row now on the uh, straight trip at the Mud Club. Okay. Um, but yeah, this uh, you don't even need you don't even need to be a diver to see this shipwreck. Now diving it is awesome. I mean, we we've done it twice now up there. Um, I snorkeled it you know a number of years ago. Went over it on the glass bottom tours. There's a uh, an outfit. They uh, will take you out there on their. Uh, you know, glass bottom boat costs you thirty two dollars a person to go out. It's a great value though. They'll take you over th over th three separate shipwrecks up there in the uh, Munising area. If uh, one of you know, sometimes the uh, weather kicks up a little bit, so the the tour gets cut short, and they will rebate you money. I mean, they are a very outstanding, customer oriented group up there. Uh, they also the same group runs the uh, shipwreck tours out of um, oh, what is it, Alpina. Personally, I like the wrecks up at, up at Munising better, but they're all, they're all worth seeing. But anyway, the, the Bermuda uh, originally sunk, I believe, it was 1870. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to read this to you from here from actually Downwind Sports, which is a paddleboarding website. Uh, let's see, the uh, on September 21st, 1870, she left the lower legs for Marquette with the cargo of General Supplies, uh, loaded 488 tons of iron ore. Uh, departed October 14th, caught in a gale off Grand Marais, 
The pounding of the waves caused her to start leaking, and her captain brought her to shelter in Munising Bay, where she reportedly filled and sank. Well, yes. Okay, some of the, I can tell you, there's good pictures on the site, but the information is not completely accurate here. Um, The ship initially did sink, not that far from Munising. What it was was the uh, boat had, um, you know, taken the beating that they're talking about, what was taking on water. The uh, captain beached the boat not far from Unising. They actually tied, uh, you know, mooring lines to trees on shore. Now, it's kind of peculiar, but Lake Superior actually has a tide on it. Not, you know, a lunar tide, but a pressure tide. Because the lake runs east to west, um, if you have a uh, low-pressure system on one end of the lake and a high pressure on the other end, it will actually push the water down on one end and raise it on the other. And... Lake Superior depth can change by as much as five feet due to this. And that's what happened here when they beached the Bermuda. The water came up, refloated the ship. ship uh, went out with enough force to actually uproot the trees it was tied to. Don't know how large the trees were or not. Went back out into the harbor and sunk. Unfortunately, the crew was sleeping in the ship when this happened, and the crew drowned. Uh, so the, the, the crew was lost. Um, that happened in 1870, 1883. The ship was raised, cargo was very valuable, and they brought it into uh, Murray Bay. Murray Bay is, Bay is just off of, it's, it's part of Grand Island. Um, it's only 28 feet deep there. Now, it's a little bit difficult to access as a diver. You're going to need a boat. This is not a shore dive. Uh, some friends of mine went up there and tried to do a shore dive with it, and it didn't work out very well because you can get to, get to the island on a ferry, but the, the shore is just not good for diving from. It's a lot of mud and weeds and things, and it's just a real challenge. They were not able to shore dive it, unfortunately. Um, so you will need a boat to get out to this. Um, although you can see it from the tour boat. The tour boat will, will not, you can't dive off the tour boat, though. Although the outfit that runs the tour boat does do a dive charter, but make your reservations with them and talk to them more, for more details, of course. Um, boat was raised in 1883. They took the cargo out of it. They took the masts off it and the rigging. Uh, and then they resunk it there in Murray Bay in 28 feet of water. Uh, aside from the masts and the rigging missing, the boat's completely intact. Um, you know, the hull is all there. Uh, you can go inside it if you're qualified for it. Um, some of the cargo is still even in there. There's a, a, a scattering of the uh, iron ore inside it. Used to be a number of personal effects in there, but unfortunately the personal effects have disappeared over the years. Um, a lot of fish at the site. Um, say lots of penetration if you qualified for it. You can see it snorkeling. You can see it from the surface just looking down below if you if you'd like. Um, there's a lot to see here, and only 28 feet of water. Uh, to my knowledge, the only other boat that rivals this one in shallow water is the Sweepstakes, which is over um, Tobermory, I believe, and a, a similar situation with that boat. But here you can see a 136-foot-long schooner in 28 feet of water. And it's a, it's a great novice dive. I mean, this website is showing paddleboarders going out to see it. They're more than paddleboarders because they have scuba fins on as well. Um, but that is our shipwreck of the week, the Bermuda and the Alger Preserve. It's a great wreck. See it if you can. And that looks like that would be a good uh, beginner dive. Yeah, that, it's a great beginner dive. It, it, you, you can see a lot of snorkeling there. I mean, uh, if you want to dive it, of course, diving is better, you know. You can get right down and, well, actually, even snorkeling, you can dive down and touch it. Uh, you know, 
diving you can get right down. You can, you know, if you qualify, go right inside the thing. Where else are you going to find a penetrable wreck in 28 feet of water? <laughs> I mean, uh, let alone a, a Civil War era schooner here, okay? I mean, this is an oldie, and, you know, Lake Superior, you get there at the right time, can have some marvelous visibility, you know, uh, doesn't have any zebra mussels on it. Um, it's a really, really cool wreck. I think you're right. It, uh, it, it looks a lot like the sweepstakes over there in Tobamori. Mm-hmm. Sweepstakes has all, uh, you know, it's similar, shallow, well-protected. Um, Bermuda, you know, um, you know, similar situation. But it, it's just amazing how cheap, uh, how shallow this thing is. To just just Google Bermuda Shipwreck Lake Superior, and you'll see some marvelous pictures. There's a lot of good video on YouTube. Um, you know, if, if you can get up there, you know, it, it, it's a pretty good haul to get up there. Uh, we've got, we've dove it twice on the uh, Mud Club Straight Strip, and it's something we regularly return to now just because we got up there and kind of got hooked on it. Um, you wouldn't think much of a, of a dive that's that shallow, but you see more on that than you do on most wrecks that are 100 feet deep. Excellent. So there, so there you have it, Karen. Karen, the Mud Club one is one something something shallow, something cool, and I think that qualifies. I agree. Well, how about some diving? Anybody get in the water this last week? Max? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mac, yeah. Oh, yeah, but I'm sure Kevin did too. <laughs> no, I didn't get in the water this last week. No, I did not. Oh. I tried. So. Yeah, well, I, I, was on, I put it on the club site. Um, the one site I've been looking at to get for a while, the other day uh, you could see minimum three feet. Parts of it looked like five feet because we haven't had any rain for a while. So I finally did get out there today. I put a couple of pictures to give you an idea. Because the access, you can drive right to where I parked. I mean, right there at the concrete barrier. And uh, we had good three feet visibility until you touched the bottom. Um, it was soft pack. And the deeper I went, the further I could put my hand down or my arm or my prod and not touch the bottom. Uh, take a knife or scissors. Because there's fishing line all over that place. At the end of where the uh, railroad bridge went across, you can see the twin little post. When you're down under, they've got some beams that I swear are two feet by two feet, rectangular, that used to be into the wall that go out a good little little distance. And the rocky slope there, uh, is you could cherry pick the uh, lures that are laying there or impaled in parts of the wood and stuff down there. That place is heavily fished during the summer. And in fact, further downstream today, there was fishermen out there today. Um, lots of junk. Uh, like I put in the post, I was extremely surprised to find very, very few bottles and cans. Lots of interesting metal parts and pieces. But the, the muck really inhibited a lot of searching, even though I had prods. You could go down two feet and you'd be hitting clink, clink, clink. So it's wood, iron, steel, no glass. And that's what I was looking for. And if you go upstream out into Pawpaw and search around, it flattens out. And again, I, I swear it's every bit of two feet of loose pack. And you did have a little current when you started getting out into the into the Pawpaw River part as it would flow into the St. Joe. But still a fun dive, uh, 52 degrees, water temperature. So not hard water yet. Excellent. I'm glad somebody got out there and got wet. Yeah, I, I had planned on going diving last Sunday. didn't quite work out. Uh, I was out looking for uh, some steamboats out in Gold Lake. I had my gear with me. I just did not come across a target 
that I was willing to dive until you know, it was getting kind of late in the day and had had to go other plans. But um, you know, so yeah, guilty. No diving for me this week. Sorry, guys. Yeah, yeah, historical artifacts you won't believe exist. Well, yeah, I was mowing the lawn, and actually, I'll be mowing the lawn more with your help. I mean, you, you know, Mac did loan me his uh, his towfish, which uh, we've played with before. You know, you, you know, basically turns a hummingbird into a bona fide side scan sonar. And um, I'll be out there again this Sunday with uh, Dan. We'll be out there looking again. So now, what what time of the day is it getting before any time you get in the water turns into a night dive? Five five o'clock. Five twenty. Five twenty. And take your lights <laughs> because that's a nightmare. It is getting that time of the year. We're we're approaching. We're probably what a month off from the shortest day of the year up here in the northern hemisphere. Yes, it is actually. My daughter mentioned that the other day to me. It's like yes. Yeah. Then the days start getting longer again. Hey. What is it? December twenty first or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. We're we're we're, we're coming up on it. So I, you always know, got. Even though we haven't even really started winter there, to just mentally. To think that days will start getting longer before too long. Well, we, we've just been fortunate. Usually, we've had a few. I've had some snow come down by now, but we've been pretty fortunate this year. Oh, this is this is a been a pretty mild fall, and I'd seen some reports that we we're supposed to be getting some lake effect weather here pretty soon in the season. So that could be any day now. We could be hitting the snow season. We're supposed to be seventy tomorrow, freezing on Saturday, lake effect on Sunday. And it'll probably be cold because I'm going to a football game on Saturday up in uh, Grand Rapids. Well, we're getting that to that time of the year where it is the Thanksgiving holiday for us in the United States. And then that kicks off our turkey dive, which, as we talked earlier, that will be coming up here. And I, I'm at this point, provided I'm clear this cold by then, I'll be able to get in the water and enjoy it. Last year, I, I wasn't really quite up to it. Well, surface support is always appreciated. I did take some photos last year. I'm, I'm hoping to make it, but I can't promise. I'm really putting, uh, trying to get all the uh, time I can get into uh, looking for these Gull Lake steamboats. Plus, there's another project I'm working on up there in uh, Grand Haven, looking for a War of 1812 boat. So, I'm, I'm doing research these days, so I can't promise I can make the turkey dive, unfortunately. Well, let's see. Is there anything else? Are you got anything you want to plug, Mac? Uh, right at this time, I do not. I do know that... One of those items that Kevin was uh, talking about, one of the presentations, was tonight. So obviously we didn't go to that one, but hopefully some people did. Yeah, there was a presentation on tall ships up in Grand Haven. Uh, we went on. Um, no, I did not make that one. I went to the one they had uh, last week, the one that Craig Rich did on uh, shipwrecks of the Sunset Coast. And that was a great show, by the way. Um, Never seen Craig do a show I didn't like. I mean, everything he does is pretty good stuff. He, he's got a lot of research and thought behind what he does. Well, Kevin, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, well, you know, support your local dive shop. Um, you know, we all like to get a bargain online, but those bargains online aren't, aren't going to service your regulators or fill your scuba tanks. Uh, use your local libraries. Um, you know, you can do some research online, but uh, not everything you find online is true. Of course, not in the library is either, but uh, you're going to get a lot better details in the libraries. So support your local libraries, vote for them in the millages, and thank them when you're there. They don't, they don't pay them very well. Thank them. Thank them. They do it because they love it. Excellent. 
Well, if you want to follow along, get a copy of the show notes, go to www.scubobsess.com. If you think this show is at least worth a dollar, why not donate to our, our Patreon account? Any donation of $3 or more will get you advanced copies of the show notes. Follow the links on our website, www.scubobsess.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scubobsessed. On Twitter at scubobsessed. And I think we are getting close to that time of the show. Are we? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I can delay it any longer. Are you Bring guys ready? Let's do it. A young doctor moves to a small coastal community to replace an elderly doctor who is retiring. The old doctor suggests the young doctor accompany him on his rounds so the community can get to know him. At the first house, a woman complains of being sick to her stomach. The old doctor says, you've probably been overdosing on fresh fruit. Cut back on the amount you've been eating and that should help. The young doctor says, that's amazing. You didn't even examine that patient. How did he diagnose the problem so quickly? Oh, that was easy. You notice I dropped uh, my stethoscope. Well, when I went down and, down and picked it up, I noticed six banana skins in the refuse bin. The young doctor says he'll try to diagnose the problem at the next house. The next house, a young wife complains of being exhausted and not having the energy she used to and feeling terribly run down. The young doctor says, oh, you've probably been doing too much work for the dive shop. You should cut back a bit and see if that helps. Well, that was great, says the old doctor after I leave. She works a lot of hours training divers and is regularly there late at night. How did you know that that was going on when you've only been just arrived in town? Well, I copied you and dropped my stethoscope. I bent down to pick it up and I saw a dive master hiding under her bed. Uh-huh. See, everybody can learn a little trick here, now or then. I want to know how he knew what the dive master looked like. Probably <laughs> a worn out, too. If he's hiding in the bay, he's busy doing something. <laughs> so on that note, uh, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Yeah, and have a good time doing it. recording has been completed did we ever figure out if uh they had audio and talk to you yeah the uh, scuba tech was was listening in oh okay. yep, he said it. yep he said he had audio so. Very good. yeah it's with talk to you you never know